Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Phil Rosenzweig. He's the author of a new book called Reginald Rose and the Journey of 12 Angry Men. Phil, thank you so much for joining us. This was a real treat to learn about the man behind the 12 Angry Men. Glad to be here, Lee. Thank you. So I don't know if all of my listeners have encountered this movie, but I encountered it when I was very young. This was shown to me when I was no older than about 11, uh, and it was a community college summer school for kids mock trial program. And they showed us this movie, and I was captivated, even as a child, even though they broke it into two days, as I recall, and I had to come back the next day and watch the end of this black and white movie. I have to ask, how did you first encounter 12 Angry Men? So I was also a student. I was a little bit older than uh, you were at that time. I was in my early 20s, and I was at UCLA doing an MBA. I was in a management class, and we watched a few movies, but this one also captivated me. And I then found that UCLA was far from the only business school that was teaching 12 Angry Men. It had actually become a staple to teach about organizational behavior, social psychology, group dynamics. And then I eventually went on to become a professor of business administration, and I have taught it for years, and it just holds up very well. I think your word captivated summarizes the way uh, it it entrances people. I had pretty much assumed until I read your book that 12 Angry Men must have been extremely popular right off the jump that, oh, so 12 Angry Men, this must have been a blockbuster. I did see that it had been nominated for some Oscars, although, you know, it was up against Bridge Over the River Kwai. That's a that's a tough one to beat. Um, but that's not so. 12 Angry Men did not have a blockbuster release. How did the movie come to be this classic that we watch decades and decades later and is used in classes of all types? It has become a classic, and and the answer to your question is it happened very slowly. Uh, the movie was released in the spring of 1957, and at that time, the, the big movies that were drawing in the crowds were these widescreen color uh, sensations, uh, like Bridge Over the River Kwai, Ten Commandments, uh, Around the World in 80 Days, movies like that. And 12 Angry Men was released that spring. It did very poorly. It was pulled within a few weeks. And really, a few weeks after its release, you couldn't find it in first-run cinemas. But the critics did like it. They liked it a lot. And by the end of the year, you had two very different narratives. You had a commercial failure on one hand, but a critical success. It won some awards abroad and did better internationally than it did at home. But it really never grabbed uh, the main audience. Only in the 60s, when it began to be shown on late-night television, did it get something of a second look-in. However, it was very popular among attorneys. It was popular, as I said, within the management field. And it also became an extremely popular stage play by amateurs and professionals alike. And what you have is the the uh, critical acclaim of the movie helped the stage play, but the popularity of the stage play fed into the popularity over time of the movie. But it it really achieved its current status only over decades. 
And further disclosure, uh, when I was in high school, I played juror number nine in my high school's uh, production of this. Well, so we've talked a little bit about the movie 12 Angry Men, but this book is more importantly about the man behind it. And he really is a fascinating human being to me. So let's talk about Reginald Rose. Reginald Rose was the writer of this movie. How did you become interested in his life? Only through 12 Angry Men. In fact, I began trying to understand what made the drama so successful and what made it appeal to so many different audiences. And that drew me into what I thought was a project about the making of the movie. And Reginald Rose would have been a little bit of a, of a side issue. But the more I learned about him, the more I thought there's really a story here about somebody who was very important and is not very well known. He was a television writer. He is often thought of as one of the top writers of the early days of television, along with names that we know much better. We know Patty Chayefsky better. We know Rod Serling better. But Rose uh, didn't do a lot to attract attention to himself. He was a little more self-effacing. And so we don't remember him the way we remember some of these larger personalities. But um, he was also very keen to write original dramas that spoke to issues of social justice. So in the early 50s, before the civil rights movement was in high gear, he was writing about uh, racial discrimination in housing. He was writing about things like juvenile delinquency at a time when that was not very popular. And it's not a surprise that in 12 Angry Men, he wanted to write about mob behavior, about due process of law, uh, and he used his dramas to bring some of these issues out to the, the general audience. So 12 Angry Men was written first for television. It uh, aired in 1954 on CBS Studio One. And then only a couple years later did they make a movie of it. And I really enjoyed, in the early part of your book, learning more about these sort of heady days of the early world of television. And it is really such a shame that we have lost so much of this because they were performed live, sent out, and then kind of vanished into the ether. I had no idea that that is how, you know, television was done at that point in time. So I really enjoyed learning more facts about that. But I really was pretty astounded at the pace at which Reginald Rose was writing these hour-long TV dramas, things that nowadays a whole writer's room is tasked with writing. And he was handing in things every couple of weeks to be performed. It really is an astounding amount of work that he did. Were you at all surprised by the sort of seat-of-your-pants nature of the television business when you looked into it? Yes, I, I think I had the same uh, impression you did. But it's not so much that how hard he worked. It's that television in those days was still very informal and by our standards today, rather primitive. You could go from submitting a script one week to having it performed on television a few weeks later simply because you didn't have all the attention of sponsors and censors and editorial committees and so forth, which meant it was, it was actually a wonderful time to break in as a writer. Television in those days, I'm talking now the early 50s, afforded an opportunity to young writers that was really unparalleled because 
the established writers weren't interested in television. They wanted to be writing for Broadway or maybe the movies. And what that did is it created a great opportunity for young writers, but also young directors and young actors, most of them in New York, to get their foot in the door and, uh, and find an audience. I'm glad you mentioned that this was mostly in New York. This really, when I was reading the book, I, I did feel very centered within New York. And some of Rose's experiences growing up really come through in the movie 12 Angry Men. And, you know, if you haven't seen the movie in a while or you've never seen it, I really encourage you to go back and rewatch it. It, it stands up. Uh, I think. And I did that last night to prepare for my discussion with you. Could you talk a little bit about Reginald Rose's family? I found it interesting that this movie so appeals to lawyers and to businessmen. Rose's father, who was mostly absent from his life, it sounds like, was an attorney. And his stepfather was a businessman. And he himself worked at an ad agency for you know, much of his young adult life, all of those influences seem to come together in 12 Angry Men. Could you talk a little bit about his early experiences and what you see them doing to push him towards this social justice mindset? Yeah, interesting question, because I think I'll, I'll probably take it in a slightly different direction than you might have, have, have thought. He didn't have much contact with his father at all. And the fact that his father was a lawyer, I think, had very little influence on him. His stepfather was a salesman, but he had no interest in working in business. Uh, he enjoyed reading. He enjoyed reading Ernest Hemingway. He enjoyed reading the stories of Studs Lonigan, And he wanted to be a writer. And I think as a writer... Uh, you're interested in what has a dramatic appeal. And I think one reason why he wrote a number of plays that were set in and around the legal world is not because he was so interested in the law, but because of the very nice dramatic nature of a court, of a trial. So his first original television play was called uh, The Incredible Incident at Carson Corners. And what he's got is uh, student uh, children who are putting on trial the custodian in their school. And so he was using the naturally dramatic setting of a trial, but not that I think he was that interested in the law per se. Later in his career, he did have a friend who was a lawyer, uh, later the dean at the uh, uh, Brooklyn College of Law, a man named Jerome Leitner, who said, you know, so much that goes on television is not accurate regarding the law. And then they worked together on the program, The Defenders. But I think originally, it was not so much an interest in the law and certainly not business. It was an interest in finding good drama. And speaking of finding good drama, so Reginald Rose used to tell a story about how he was inspired to write 12 Angry Men. And there were a few different versions of the story told over many years and you did a nifty bit of detective work yourself. Can you talk first about what was his story about, you know, how he came up with this idea? And what did you find in doing your research for this book, which again is Reginald Rose and the Journey of 12 Angry Men? So Rose always maintained that he was inspired to write 12 Angry Men from uh, his jury service in spring of 1954. And he, in a few different interviews and a few different uh, brief things that he wrote, he, he gave a few clues about the case 
on which he said he served on a jury. So I decided to do a bit of research and try to find out, well, what was that case? And so I was in touch with the New York City Department of Records and got in touch with them. And I said, look, I'm, I'm looking for a manslaughter case from the spring of 1954. And they said, fine, who was the defendant? I said, well, I, I don't know. I'm trying to find out. <laughs> okay, well, who was the victim? I said, well, I don't know that either. And they said, well, hmm, what do you know? And I said, well, here's what I know about this date. Charge of manslaughter involved a fight between two men who were said to be Bowery bums. So we're not talking shooting or strangulation, a fight among two men and in lower Manhattan. And eventually they said, look, we have no way to search exactly that way. But there is in the New York District Attorney, the Manhattan DA's homicide docket, a list uh, kept in longhand of all the homicides in Manhattan, and it will tell you everything about who died, where the body was found, where they expired, and, and so forth, and whether charges were brought, and whether there was a trial, and you're welcome to come in and look at that. And so I did. I went to New York, and I spent a day going through this enormous homicide docket, and found what seems to be, I think without any question, exactly uh, that case, which was tried in late March of 1954. And it just meets all of the parameters and no other case matches even a few of them. But when I pulled the, uh, when, when I, I called for the case file and had it pulled from records, they did have in the case file a list of the jurors and Rose is not there. And that was, of course, not what I had hoped to find. I had hoped to be able to say, well, yes, here's the proof that he was on this uh, this trial. But when I read a little bit more about his experience, uh, he mentioned that when you're called for jury duty there, you go to this large central room, and then they would spin a big wheel. And he said maybe 30 to 40 people would go down the corridor to a courtroom. You would hear what the case was about, maybe if you thought you weren't the right juror, you would ask to be excused. And then from those remaining, they'd spin another wheel and they would impanel 12 jurors and two alternates and the rest were not kept. So if you do the math, well, if 30 to 40 people were picked and only 14 were impaneled, that means somewhere between what? 16 to 26 were not. I suspect that Rose was one of those 16 to 26 because this was a very obscure case about an obscure person. I don't think, it, it certainly wasn't reported in the newspapers, but he wasn't on the jury. So I think what he did is he embellished a little bit or actually compressed a little bit his experience. So I don't think he was on the jury of the case as he describes, but really it doesn't matter because the most important thing is that he was enormously affected by being in the courtroom, by seeing the person who was going to be judged, by looking at the judge, by seeing, you know, the, the, the large formal setting. And as he said, it just knocked him out. And his great insight, Lee, I think what, what he did so well is rather than writing a drama about a trial, which of course had been done many times, and he himself had done with judge and jury and prosecution and defense, he took his drama in a different direction. He said, nobody really knows what goes on when the jurors leave the courtroom. Let's follow that. And he had then this 
great insight to write a drama about what goes on in the jury room. Would you mind reading a little bit of your book to help my listeners get a sense of the language? I think that you have a, a passage picked out that speaks to this. I, I do. And the passage I have, can I say a word about uh, why this passage and where it comes? Please do. The book is called Reginald Rose and the Journey of Twelve Angry Men. And the word journey is very important because I talk about the inspiration, the writing, how it was then on television, how it was in the movies, but how it has gone on to reach audiences in management and in law. And I describe a lot about why this movie appeals so much to lawyers. And it's not because it's realistic. The jurors, as much as we might admire them for their courage or their their goodwill, uh, they don't behave the way a jury should behave. You're not supposed to bring your own evidence in. You're not supposed to visit the scene of the crime. You're not supposed to conduct your own simulation. So in some ways, they're not a good jury. But, and so here's my, here's the passage I'll read to you. The enduring appeal of 12 Angry Men comes from a deeper truth that in a democracy, a system of justice is only as good as its citizens. Time magazine grasped this notion in its 1957 review, quote, the onlooker learns better than he could from any law school course that the law is no better than the people who enforce it. And the people who enforce it are all too human, end quote. The judge in the movie, played by Rudy Bond, is bored and disinterested. In the play, the judge is not seen at all. Nor is there a valiant or principled lawyer, an Atticus Finch or a Clarence Darrow, to provide insight or moral guidance. To the contrary, we learn that the defendant's lawyer overlooked important points and failed to mount an effective defense. If justice is to prevail in 12 angry men, it is not because of the legal professionals, but in spite of them. Rather, we are shown ordinary citizens who are entrusted with the most important of tasks to pass judgment on a fellow citizen, and who, despite disagreements and conflict, carry out that task in a competent manner. Their solemn duty is described by Juror 11, quote, to come down to this place to decide on the guilt or innocence of a man we have never heard of before. We have nothing to gain or lose by our verdict. This is one of the reasons why we are strong, end quote. Although they have no legal training and are given no guidance on how to conduct their deliberations, they are expected to take their responsibility seriously, to wrestle with conflicting evidence, to overcome personal biases, to fight indifference and apathy, and to do their duty, no matter how unpleasant or difficult. That, that really does... Sum it up. I know that when I was a teenager and we were casting this play, which we then had to rename 12 Angry Jurors, not easy to say, one thing that struck us then was although the movie version and the initial television version, everyone was portrayed by, at least outwardly, a, a white man. There were differences in class. Someone was identified as an immigrant, another young man was identified as having grown up in the slums, but there was there was a sameness. However, in the text itself, you can make all sorts of different choices about what person plays it. I had always kind of assumed that 
in the movie 12 Angry Men, the fact that these were all men, that they were all, as I said, at least visually, they appear to all be white. This must have been a blind spot that Reginald Rose had. And I learned through your book that, no, that's not accurate. This was a deliberate choice. Could you talk a little bit about what was behind that choice? Why were these all men when women could serve on juries at that point in time? Why were these all white men without any sort of visually minority actor appearing in it? So they were all men because, as Rose said, uh, men behave differently when it's all men. Uh, No, he said, first of all, men behave differently than women, and they behave differently when they are only with other men. What he meant by that was the very direct expression of disagreement, even sometimes threats of violence, would be, Rose thought, more easy to bring out and that kind of tension and anger more easy to display if it was all men in the room. As far as ethnicity goes, yes, they are all white. And the reason for that is that the defendant, whose ethnicity is never mentioned, not even hinted at, is said to be one of them, something other than white. And in Rose's outline, he he gave the defendant and the defendant's father names. They were Jack Davis and Harry Davis. But then he dropped even that, and there's no clue about who the defendant may be. In the 1957 movie, the defendant is seen very briefly at the beginning and is probably, we might think, Hispanic, maybe in 1950s New York of Puerto Rican origin. But that's just what we might infer based on the casting that Sidney Lumet did. There's nothing in the script. And the reason for that is that by not mentioning any specific ethnic group, the lesson about us versus them and who they are is broadly, is much more relevant broadly. It can be generalized to anyone. And so what Rose wanted was this all-male, all-white jury. But you're absolutely right. When they begin, you think, oh, they're all white men. They must be fairly similar. And they themselves, the characters, look around the room and they think, well, I'm surrounded by people like me. They probably see the world the way I do. We should be able to reach a verdict very quickly. But as the play goes on, you realize that there's actually many, many differences among them. The young versus the old, the wealthy versus the poor differences in temperament, differences in national origin. And these differences as they come out, I think, are more powerful having come out from a group that appeared initially to be quite similar. So obviously, I have thought about this movie and play and all of its implications when it comes to the law. But I'd love to hear what you talk about when you're speaking to people in management worlds What's the importance of this movie to you when you use it as an example to management crowds? You're putting your finger on one thing that's just so wonderful about this. You have the legal profession that thinks, well, this is our movie. My gosh, it takes place in a jury room. It's about reasonable doubt and due process and presumption of innocence. This is a legal movie. But in my field, we look at it and say, this is a wonderful example of behavior of individuals in groups. We see things like avoidance behavior. We see pressures for conformity. We see ways that we bond, ways that we challenge. 
We see forces for affiliation and for repulsion. We see different ways that people participate and don't participate over time. And there'll be people in, in my line of work who say, well, yeah, this takes place in a jury room, but really this is about human beings confronting one another, working with one another in a, in a small group setting. And the fact that it's in a jury room is almost incidental to the greater issues about conformity, influence, power, and interpersonal behavior. And so you have these, these two very different fields, each of which has enormous affection and reverence for this movie. And they're not, each of them is right. There's nothing wrong with one interpretation or the other. And it speaks to the extraordinary richness that Reginald Rose was able to imbue in what is a fairly simple drama from a structural standpoint. In rewatching the movie last night, I started noticing moments like, you know, one of the jurors who is very timid, he offers cough drops to the room and everyone pretty much ignores him, except for juror number eight, who is Henry Fonda, who is the protagonist if we would call one of these 12 actors the protagonist, who says, oh, yeah, I'll take, a, I'll take a cough drop from you. And it's a very small moment if you're looking at this as a legal movie. But I have to imagine that if you're looking at this as a film about relationships and persuasion, that's a much larger moment. It is. And when I teach this, I'll mention that. I'll say, anybody notice the, the question about the cough drop? When, when juror two says, who would like the cough drop? Who wanted one? Ah, juror eight. And I asked the question, do you think he really needed a cough drop? Hmm, he probably didn't. Why did he say, yes, I'll have one? He did it to establish a bond. He did it to, to validate juror two and to establish a connection. And then juror two takes the cough drop from his coat pocket, walks all the way around the table to the far corner, gives it to juror eight. And what does he do then? He stands behind him for several minutes. It's a way of saying, I'm with you. I'm connected to you. And in fact, I'm going to stand behind you because you're something of my protector there. So these relationships of who's pairing with who, who's opposing who, are very, very powerful and they're very well brought out. Some of that, by the way, was written into the, the drama by Rose. Some of it was the way that Sidney Lumet chose to direct it. And, uh, but for either reason, it's, it's very powerful stuff. So we've talked a lot about 12 Angry Men, uh, appropriately so, but I had no idea that Reginald Rose, the writer of 12 Angry Men, was also behind what was one of the seminal TV shows, legal TV shows, to come out of early television. Now, the ABA Journal, we frequently do pop culture series where you'll say, here are the 12 most important legal plays. Here are the 50 most important legal TV shows or legal movies. Those are always very popular on our website. And The Defenders always makes it in when we talk about TV shows. But I myself have never seen an episode of The Defenders. Could you talk first about what was this show? Why was it so important? And then why is it so hard to find now? Okay. So as, as we mentioned a few minutes ago, Rose's early work from about 1953 to 1957 was writing original dramas for these anthology programs. There were several. Uh, that's what Patty Chayefsky and, and others were doing as well. But those began to decline by the mid-50s, and some of them stopped altogether. Some of them moved to Los Angeles. 
Rose then wanted to find a new outlet, and working with Herb Brodkin, a well-known producer, they floated a few ideas to CBS, one of which was then approved, and it was a weekly series called The Defenders. It was based on the last of the original dramas that Rose wrote for Studio One, which was called The Defender, uh, singular. And the idea there was that you would have a father-son legal team. And so in addition to the natural conflict between defense attorneys and prosecutors, you'd also have something of a uh, relationship dynamic between the two defense attorneys, the father, older, experienced, pragmatic, the younger man, idealistic, passionate, and so forth. And this then became the basis for a weekly series that ran from autumn of 1961 for the next four years until spring of 1965. Uh, for Rose, it was a big change because instead of writing a few original dramas, he was now the show's creator and the story supervisor and was responsible for working with a team of writers to have an original script every week, 30 a year, more than 30 a year for five years. It was a, a very taxing challenge for him. But it also gave him a very broad canvas to raise for general consideration many important issues. A lot about capital punishment, free speech, the blacklist. Uh, in the first year, there was a program about abortion. This is 1962. This is 11 years before Roe versus Wade. And Reginald Rose wanted to have a program about abortion. And CBS let him do it, although some sponsors weren't very happy. Uh, the show won Emmys three years in a row for best dramatic series. And many individual programs won Emmys for either the writer or the director. It was a very, very influential program at a time when commercial television was beginning to move more in the direction of very soft, sort of lowbrow humor. Um, you know, you had Gilligan's Island, you had uh, Green Acres, and you had all these westerns. So for those years, The Defenders was one of the most intelligent and thoughtful programs on television. Uh, to your last point, Lee, unfortunately, of the four years, only the first one is easily available on DVD. And you can go online, you can buy it, and you will see E.G. Marshall as the father, Lawrence Preston, Robert Reed as his son, Kenneth Preston. And many of this, and and by the way, that was Juror 4 in 12 Angry Men, who then became the lead actor in The Defenders. And many of the other jurors in 12 Angry Men, Jack Klugman, Barton Balsam, often play roles in The Defenders. So you can see the first year. Years two, three, and four, unfortunately, are not available on DVD. I don't think they've been digitized, and it would be wonderful if they would be, because that those are some of the, the most important years. So as you say, there are easily available biographies of some of these earlier pioneers of television, but Reginald Rose didn't get the same attention. So I have to ask you, how did you do the research for this book and how are you able to come up with some of these timelines for his life and information behind what he was doing during those years? Well, in the late uh, 1960s, the University of Wisconsin uh, Film and Theater Research Archives approached many people active in television and asked them if they would donate their papers. And Rose was one of the people who did so. So did Rod Serling, uh, David Susskind, several others. 
So the good news is if you go to Madison, Wisconsin, you will find all of his papers, which includes outlines that were rejected, outlines that were accepted, early drafts, um, contract negotiations, all kinds of things. So that was one thing. Then, of course, I did searches of uh, newspaper interviews that he gave and was able to piece together things that he said at various times. And even then, um, I didn't have as full a picture as I would have liked until I was able to make contact with his oldest son, Jonathan, who was able to fill in a lot of the details of uh, Rose's private life. But Rose was a fairly private person, and there were numerous times in the 1990s when uh, there were in New York panel discussions about the Defenders. He didn't go. Uh, an event held about Studio One at the Paley Museum. He didn't go. He lived very quietly his last years in Connecticut. I don't think he was... Um, a recluse, uh, when people contacted him, he seemed to be willing to, to speak with reporters or researchers, but he didn't go into New York very much and didn't really seem to want to leave uh, much of a record. He did, right at the end of his life, publish memoirs, but they were a, an odd kind of memoirs. He took his last year in high school when he was 16, a very formative time, and wrote a series of letters to long-lost friends, and the book is called Undelivered Mail. But if you go through that book, you can see some clues of his early years about his family, where he lived, what high school was like, and so forth. So it's a fairly incomplete record that I was able to cobble together from different sources to create what I hope is a, a thoughtful and, and complete biography of uh, a very important writer. One of my favorite of your finds actually appears on the cover of the hardback version of Reginald Rose and the Journey of Twelve Angry Men. And it is basically uh, in 12 Angry Men, juror number three is one of the antagonists to juror number eight, played by Henry Fonda in the movie. And juror number three, I believe, is Lee J. Cobb. And in early versions, there wasn't a real motivation that was clear of why was juror three like this. And you found a page in which Reginald Rose basically provides a backstory. And, and I love that. I love being able to see, you know, the pencil marks where he is, is penciling it in. That must have felt like such a find when you came across that. Yeah, yes. Uh, and that's what I found in Wisconsin, where I, I was able to see the first outline, then the first play, then the hand corrections to the play, and then the first screen version, and then some of the later screen versions, uh, the, the climactic scene where Lee J. Cobb tears up the picture of his son and breaks down, that only came at what's called the shooting script, the very last version. They had different endings up until then. And so you're able to see the, the evolution of the script. And that point that you mentioned, Lee, where, uh, gosh, what's going to, we need to provide a bit more motivation. Why was Jura 3 so angry and, and so willing to punish this defendant. Ah, it's what in social psychology we call transference. His anger towards his estranged son is transferred onto the defendant. And yes, there there is on the cover, I was able to, to make a, a high-resolution copy of that page and put it on the cover because those are some of the things that I think people who like the movie will really enjoy reading where you see the evolution of the script. Well, Phil, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. If people are interested in picking up 
Reginald Rose and the Journey of 12 Angry Men. How could they do that? It's uh, where all books are sold. I, you can you can go to Fordham University Press, who is the publisher, or you can go online, whether it's Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, anywhere else. It, it was um, released this month. We're talking in October. And so it should be very widely available. And thank you to my listeners for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. If you enjoyed this, please rate, review, and subscribe in your favorite podcast listening service.